Hey guys, welcome back to Shades of Brilliance. I'm your host, Sierra Venable, and welcome to season two. Also, happy new year. Oh my God, it's 2024. Honestly, 2024 is in the years now are starting to sound just too, too like late. Like, I don't know, like 2010 made sense. Like 2024 sounds crazy. 2028, like that, that sounds so like future that I can't wrap my brain around it. Maybe that's what getting older is like. I don't know. I don't feel old, but I'm like, 2024 sounds really, really like dark ages. And you guys, we're going to do some current events today. Pretty much is the dark ages. Um, but how is it going? How are y'all? How was the holidays? I actually really had a great holiday this year. I've not had good holidays in the past. Not that, you know, the holiday hasn't been good because my mom always makes my holiday like really great. But this was the first year that I think we really, really enjoyed our time. Like, and I hate to say that because Christmas is such a devotion of, of running around and buying gifts and making food and having to top every year, you know? And I think this year we both realized like we don't need a bunch of crazy gifts. Like I got a few little things and I'm thankful for what I got, but it was more about like relaxing and like spending downtime together intentionally. Um, my mom just moved to California actually. So she's like 40 minutes outside of LA and we were like at the beach the whole time, not the whole time, but you know, we went to the beach and we had fresh seafood in Malibu. She's really close to Malibu. That's like her closest beach. So we just like drove down the canyon, like listened to music, watched movies. Like it, it was just the best. Like it was so relaxing. I loved seeing my dog. I flew home like December 9th for mom's birthday. So it was super early. Like I basically finished my classes and like flew home the next day. Um, and because I flew backwards into time, I like made it there for my mom's birthday, which was really funny. And, um, it was just so good, like from December 9th all the way until I came back, which was like January 4th. Um, it was just like the best time. And we shopped and I went to Melrose and I met up with my friends because I actually went to college in California. So or in L.A. So I did like all of my college friends were there. So it just like was this big, harmonious, like full circle moment where I felt like my mom had finally like made it and like really relaxed and she was just in a really good place. And then I got to see like my college friends because I hated the pressure of going home and seeing my high school friends. Like I just, I'm sorry, but my high school friends were just not really real. I do still talk to people from high school. So if I'm still talking to you, you're one of my friends, but you get what I'm saying. Like my little high school group was not really my friends. Like it just takes so long to get through that kind of stuff, or at least it feels long. And I hated going back where I went to high school to like interact with those people, like run into those people. I didn't want to. And the pressure to like have high school friends. I actually, that was a big topic in therapy for me last year was feeling like, did I do something wrong? Like, should I be living this cookie cutter life where I still have the same friends since elementary school. And, and she was just like, no. And on top of that, you're black. <laughs> you know, my therapist was black. Um, and, you know, she just told me like, 
that's not realistic for Black people. Not that you can't develop friendships, but this kind of cookie cutter, all American concept that like every single person you rub shoulders with becomes your best friend is a system built for white people, you know? And so she really validated me on that because I just felt kind of crazy that like, I just, I didn't want to keep putting energy into places that I didn't want to give energy to anymore. And so my mom moving like really got both of us out of that energy. Um, I technically, and for those of you that don't know, I am originally from Virginia, grew up in Virginia. Then we moved to New Mexico when I was in like um, elementary school, like fifth grade. So I basically did elementary, not elementary, like, yeah, a year of elementary, middle school and high school in New Mexico. And we never once felt like that was home. That was, you know, the statement for us, like it just kind of worked out that way. And I don't have complete resentments toward New Mexico. Like I had a lot of good memories. I had a lot of growth there, my mom too, but it was certainly not where my mom wanted to like live the rest of her life. And people knew that. Like the second I graduated high school, people would ask my mom, like, are you leaving? Like, are, what are you going to do now? Because people can tell like that we just were not, we just were not like supposed to be there. Um, And I think that's mainly because New Mexico is such a, you know, you live there, your family was there, you raise your kids there, you die there. Like, it's like you're either born there and you have family there, so it makes sense, or you retire in New Mexico. Like, nobody's, like, moving there, I guess, just to live. I don't know. Maybe there there are people that are doing that. But most people, I feel like, had family or they had some kind of connection to be there, whereas we didn't. And because it was such a southern state like low population it just kind of was like we felt like outcasts and I certainly did I I felt like a fish that was too big for the bowl you know and my mom I know felt like that too we're like it, it was just this uncomfortability of feeling like we had outgrown it before we had really even lived there like listen to that when you're moving yourself places listen to you know, what you feel like around people in certain states and places, because sometimes you're just too big for them. And I don't think that that's narcissistic or ridiculous to say. Um, There was nothing grounding us there. We felt too big. Everybody was reminding us that like, oh, you don't belong here in some way or another. They weren't saying that to us, but like, it was just like, oh, why are you here? Like everything was positioned that way. So my mom is finally happy. She's in California now. Um, and visiting her was like such a breath of fresh air because it was so new. It wasn't Virginia where we're back to what we used to know. She was, we're both building our lives in two completely different directions. I'm out here in London. She's in California now. So it was fun, like visiting her new life and what she's built for herself because it was so much more peaceful than it's ever been. So we just like drove around, went to open houses because she's like looking at buying a house. Like we just did so many things that I thought to myself, this is surreal. Like I think the entire time I felt like in shock because I mean, my mom has really been a great example for me of somebody that does not let society hold them back. And she she always says, we should not be here. We should not be here. As in like, you know, if I listened to those people, we would not be here. 
Um, but she keeps going and she has so many new ideas for her life. And so it was just such a great energy. I know that not everybody's parents are in that place. I'm thankful that my mom is still learning, is still growing. And, you know, she's committed to that as long as she's alive. Like I will keep growing and trying to be the best parent in person I can be. And that's really all you can ask of your parents. Um, you know, I, I just respect it. Like, and I, it's so much easier to love your parents when they are pouring into themselves and they love themselves. You know, I feel like we're on the other side of so many of those downs and like setbacks that I grew up with. And so it just, it's crazy. Like she's out building her life. I'm out building mine. We're both in good places. So it was just really, really great. Um, I set some New Year's goals while I was out in California. We went to the beach and just had like a beach day. And we do these things from this like company. Oh, I'm going to forget what it's called now. I'll have to look it up. Um, it's called the year, let me see it, year compass. You can look up yearcompass.com and find these, but they're little like worksheets that basically walk you through like processing the last year and then like planning for the year ahead. I'm huge on these. It's like the only thing I do. I don't really set like New Year's resolutions, but I will set like a tone for the year and that booklet helps you do that. So it's not like, what are your goals? And like, how much weight do you want to lose? It's like, you know, what do you want your year to feel like when you hit certain goals? What are you going to buy yourself? How are you going to treat yourself? How are you going to pamper yourself? So it really helps you like get into the feelings and start like setting intentions more than like a goal. So, um, it was just really, really great. We took crispy and she was chasing like pelicans and birds the whole time. And it was wild, but it was just such a good way to start the year. Um, and my intention for the year, one of my biggest intentions is to have a candy dish. And I know that sounds like wild. <laughs> Obviously the intention is deeper than getting like a candy dish, but you know how those grandmas will have like a little candy jar and it'll have like seasonal candies in it. I have determined that I am that person. Not that I want to be that person. I already am that person. And so I'm like, I need a candy dish like by my door in my little studio apartment as like a little reminder that you're allowed to have the little things. Something that I've really struggled with in the UK and living in Europe is the thin culture here is out of control. The concept of what is healthy is out of control. Um, it's bonkers. Like I thought America was crazy. I thought America had a thin problem. I mean, everybody and their mother is on Ozempic or on Mount Jaro. Um, and it just kind of feels like our culture is spiraling out of control under white supremacy. And one of the ways that, that manifests for women is to be so ultra thin. And like, I don't know, I just, I don't, and here's the thing with culture. I hate criticizing any one person for behaving in certain ways or believing certain things because it's so pervasive. It's not just somebody telling you, oh, you're fat. It's like this concept of what health is. And diet is one of those things that you can't really constrict. You can't tell somebody what's going to be good for them. Like the only way that I guess you could come close is if you worked with a dietitian who was like pulling your labs and like specifically working with you. I've really struggled with that health culture because I've never wanted to dislike my body. I grew up as a dancer. I grew up in gymnastics. Like I've always had a very innate sense of my body and I've never had any problems with it. So for people, for me to hear people saying, oh, I need to work out or I need to do this or I need to do that. And I'm not going to eat that anymore. I'm like, oh my God. So my little grounder for that is going to be a treat bowl. 
with like little seasonal candies in it, whether it's Valentine's Day, whether it's whatever, just as a reminder, like you're only here on this planet one time. Let's not focus about it, about your weight and about your body the entire time. And I, I can honestly consciously say I really don't have a body issue. I feel like sometimes I get offended hearing other people talk about their bodies in certain ways. And it like offends me. And also people are so quick to tell you here, oh, that's not healthy because they love to think that Americans are so unhealthy when they have no real understanding of what American life necessitates and what how, how food is really a culture. You know, like so much of Black American cuisine is not going to be considered healthy by Europeans. But are we eating collard greens and fried chicken every night? No. Right. And so a lot of those notions are just like layered in misunderstanding and racism, honestly. So I just I've stopped telling people what I'm eating. (laughs) And the candy dish is like this signal of have the treats, eat the things. And like, that's the kind of mom I want to be. That's the kind of grandma I want to be like, eat the freaking Reese's pieces. Like, holy crap. So anyway, that's like my one like manifested New Year's goal is a candy bowl with little candies in it. Simple. Um, So something I want to do with my new episodes, you guys, is I want to get into some current events. We're going to do a listener question of the day, and then we're going to get into the topic. I figured this would be fun just because I have so many things I always want to talk about in these episodes. So we're going to try to see if this works for season two, and I think it will. Um, Let's get into the current events. Obviously, 2024 is going to be a big year. The U.S. has a huge election ahead of ahead of the year. I'm like holding my breath as I say that. I cannot believe it's an election year. I am terrified. I think all Americans are terrified because there are really no good options. Everyone is just kind of like, wow. For the first time, I think Americans are bonded over the fact that there are no good options. Um, And it's been interesting hearing the astrologers explain what they think will go down. So there are some astrologers that will say that Trump won't be president again. There are some that will say he might like there's people are just very concerned, very, very concerned with what's going to happen to Donald. And my European friends are asking me, well, how can he be the president again if he went to jail? (laughs) And I'm going, um, I don't quite know how that works. You know, I don't actually think he went to jail. I think he was bonded out, but the city of Atlanta requires for certain cases that the, what is it called? The plaintiff? not the plaintiff, the, the defendant, no, no, the plaintiff be um, booked and have their mugshot taken. So a lot of Europeans have this idea that he actually went to prison and like sat in jail for a while. No, we wish, we wish, but that's not how that worked out. So um, yeah, he was processed basically, but he has a, still a lot of open cases. It's one of those things where there's no law around that because it's crazy to think that a president could have legal troubles or charges. Like they didn't create a law because they didn't think that would ever happen. So it's weird. I think that politics, especially in a lot of these government systems are going to start becoming really important, but also less important because I don't think that these government employees were ever supposed to be gods, right? So it's just a little bit terrifying to think about. But I also like to think that when things fall apart, things have to fall into place. So that's the only piece that I have about this whole political situation. 
Um, Cat Williams. Can we just touch on Cat Williams for a second? Y'all are hearing us a little bit later in the month, but Cat Williams just did a tell-all of Hollywood secrets with, what's his name? He's a football player, and he has this podcast. Um, I don't even know the guy, because I don't really, I'm not into, uh, like, football that much. Basically, he sits down with this podcast guy, and he's, like, re- revealing all of Hollywood's secrets. The interview went on for what felt like four hours, where he was so in tune with truth and so in tune with himself that there's no way he could have been lying. Um, it was necessary for the Black community, I think, and it was necessary for Hollywood because a lot of Hollywood secrets have been coming out, and I don't think Americans really have ever understood how deeply Hollywood affects Americans and American life. Um, there is no country where TV is considered a Bible. I mean, TV is considered like the holy grail in the U.S. It doesn't matter what the truth is as long as the TV said it. So Hollywood has an integral, integral lever, level in access to power. And all of those secrets are coming out. The industry plants. I mean, the episode was just so telling and so revealing that it makes sense why it went so viral because he wasn't even being petty about it. Like, sure, he made petty comments, but he was just standing in his own lane. And we need more of that this year. I think 2024 is a truth year. I think all the truth is going to come out. I think it's going to get really, really hard to be fake, and it's going to get really, really hard to pull one over on people. We're realizing this year that everything is connected. All of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff is connected to everything, the Harvey Weinsteins. All of this stuff is coming out. These dogs are dirty, and they run our countries, and it's really, really terrifying to think about. So it's a truth year. Cat Williams, he's first one up at bat, and he did a great job. Um, Gypsy Rose. Gypsy Rose is released from prison and you guys are scaring me. Everyone is obsessed. She's already on a press tour because I think she did a documentary with Lifetime. So she's on a press tour right now and Miss Girl is getting her makeup done. She's out here with a husband and everyone is memeing her. I just can't even believe it. I think I'm just, I'm scared for her. I don't know. Her whole life has been, and for those of you who don't know, Gypsy Rose (laughs) is um, a young girl who, how do you explain Gypsy Rose? Her mother did what's called um, Munchausen by proxy, which is basically this idea that your parents keep inventing ailments to sue the hospital and like make money off of the hospital. Um, It's very serious, but it's also extremely rare because most Americans, like, don't know how to work the healthcare system. So, like, nobody wants to willingly go to the hospital, but there are people who stay at the hospitals bouncing from thing to thing, bouncing from place to place and, like, suing them to get money because you can make a lot of money suing a hospital, I guess. I don't know. It's really, really uh, bizarre. And uh, she killed her mom because her mom was just you know, I'm sure a narcissist and like so many different levels of messed up. And she grew up under a lot of these false pretenses, ends up in prison because she murdered somebody. And everyone's like, they let my girl out, like memeing her. And I'm scared because 
I don't know that she's ever known what her life could be or what her life is going to look like. So for her to all of a sudden have overnight success, it's very American. I'm not going to lie. It's a very like Americana story that not only that our systems are so messed up that like people are doing something called Munchausen by proxy to make money and to like live off of their children. But the fact that like, then she got gets caught up in the whole criminal system and now she's a meme and she's an American hero. That kind of life cycle is so indicative of where American culture is and it's not in a good place. Um, I, yeah, I, I wish her the best. But I also wish her rest and peace. And I hope that she doesn't fall victim to the internet because I feel like that's what's coming up next. So that that's the, the current events, a lot of current events. That's that's those are huge, even those right there. Another current event is, oh my God, Claudine Gay steps down from Harvard. And we're gonna go into this later. This is kind of my topic of the day, so I won't go into this right now, but so many thoughts about that. Um, the listener question of the day is, do you think fashion school is overrated slash needed? Um, this honestly could be an entire topic in itself. To answer this really quickly so we can get into the topic of the day, I would say fashion school is no different than an Ivy League, meaning they're expensive, meaning it's a lot of privilege. So it's not your typical four-year university, you know, where you're going to go and you're going to get a degree and then you'll get a job and then you'll whatever. It's a very specialized degree, which is great. I think if you're looking for a specialized degree, it's a great place to get one. You do need to really research what fashion schools you're looking for. Um, I recommend, honestly, I don't think there are any good fashion schools in the U.S. right now. I went to FITM, which is a school in Los Angeles. They're having a whole rebrand right now, so I wouldn't even go towards them. FIT, I know, is big. Parsons is huge. But the problem with Parsons is it's a for-profit school. It's a private school. So you're going to pay a lot. And I'm not sure that if you don't really know what exactly you want to do and you haven't verified you know, what kind of career you want to build, then I probably wouldn't dive down into Parsons. I honestly would recommend UAL. I'm there right now for my master's and I'm in the College of Communication. But the good thing about UAL and a lot of European fashion schools is that they connect to a bunch of different departments. So like you, if you wanted to change your major, it'd be messy, but you could still have opportunity within the same school. Like FITM was very business oriented and everything touched fashion in some way. UAL is not like that. Um, it's a huge like research school. There's just a lot of credibility and a lot of different aspects of the school. So I don't know. It's difficult to say because fashion is such a complex industry. It's not just designing. It's communications. Like if you want to go into communications, then I would look around at a lot of schools. And by the way, calm is the way to go. My calm girlies are booked and busy. Okay. It's there's never been a more important time for communications than a time like right now, like a society like right now. So, a lot of my friends like they're just they're building. You know, they're in their entry level job that they know is not that great, but it'll get them somewhere. But they also have their thing on the side, and like I, I don't know. I I feel like my comms girls are out there doing the damn thing. So I recommend a comm degree, communications. I know that everybody says like. 
what do you need with a communications degree? But even at like a regular four-year school, communications is the new business degree. I'm I'm convinced. And it makes sense for girls like us who couldn't keep their mouths shut, okay? So if you were a talker growing up, I would look into comms. Like fashion communication could bridge a lot of your um, dreams with fashion and stuff like that. Other than that, you're looking at tailoring. You're looking at um, degree schools that teach you how to sew and do that whole thing. I knew that wasn't my thing in fashion. So that kind of led me towards communications. <sighs> but yeah, that question could be an entire podcast. I don't know how to answer that. I think I got what I needed and what I wanted, what I was looking for out of my fashion degree or out of my degree at a fashion school. Because I don't have a fashion degree. I have a communications degree from a fashion school. Woo, that's a full mouth. That's a mouthful. Um so I got what I was looking for and I made sure to get what I was looking for because I'd already had two years of college before I went. So I'd already had a, a, you know, a foundation of who I was and like what I was looking for. I think if I were to go in fresh 18, not really knowing what I wanted, like knowing some aspects, but not everything, I probably would have been concerned about just going into fashion design. And look, like everything with life, nothing is a waste. Like, I hate that capitalism has us thinking that everything can be a waste, that everything is just independent of each other. It's not. If you start with a fashion degree and you decide, oh my God, I really want to be an architect, you can do that. There is nothing holding you back. And it's better for you to trust yourself and live your life big than to start something and stop something and give up. And I think that's what people mean when they say never give up. Not that you shouldn't give up on things that are not for you. But don't give up on the pursuits that you're originally looking for. You know, things change. But if you're still, you know, don't give up. Don't. I guess what I'm saying is don't give up on yourself. That's what I would say about fashion school, <laughs> um, which is very vague and only makes sense if you went to a fashion school. Okay, so we're going to get into the topic of the day. I wrote this down in full caps, by the way, on my notepad. It is why are black women society's mirrors? That to me is fresh on the docket in 2024. And what freshly comes to mind is Claudine Gay. She was the first black woman acting president of Harvard University they've ever had. And I think she was there for no longer than a year and a half. I honestly don't even think she was there for a year or for two years. I think she was there for a year and a little bit, <laughs> which is so comical because this does not shock a single black women, woman on the planet, on the planet. And what happened to her, her being pushed out by an institution is so predictable and so it's so like pre-planned that again, I, I just don't think that anybody is shocked, right? And this is what I want to dive into today is like, why are we expected to not only do everything that we do four times as good, we can't even be considered unless we're four times as good. We're then expected to coach everyone, set all the records straight and build society with no help. You know, like we are applauded for being resilient people. This is very huge in my first like mini thesis in my master's program. Um, we have to make a zine. And my zine was about resistance and about where resistance can be located and where is resistance experienced for Black Americans. And what I realized is 
We're so focused on resilience, applauding Black people for surviving, that nobody ever thinks to support us in the process. And the reason they can't is because our systems have never not been colonial, right? So when you look at America as a colonial society, we're not a post-colonial society. We are very much a colonial society. There are all these contradictions with higher education, and there always have been. You know, America, American institutions like Harvard, like the Ivy Leagues, have been considered pillars of American truth time and time again. And just like our journalism, our newspapers, our news outlets, they're slowly being bought and sold by propaganda machines, whether that be billionaires, whether that be bad actors. Like, I don't really know where to place the blame. All I know is Harvard University sacrificing their president to ridiculous questioning and ridiculous reasoning. Now now they're questioning if her PhD is even valid. They're questioning her citations. They're que- it's like, oh my God. It, it's so frustrating. And I honestly don't even know all of the details of this case. I know that Harvard University, they pulled, I think it was what, it was three presidents from um, higher educational institutes. And they did a Senate hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses. Clearly, clearly there's an agenda here with the genocide happening to Palestinians. And, you know, this committee is going to get to the bottom of anti-Semitism, which is really interesting because they were never interested in anti-Semitism for years. (laughs) Like for years, Jewish people have been complaining about not I shouldn't say complaining. They've had very valid reasoning for anti-Semitism because it is real. I don't think anybody is denying that. But why do these institutions and systems only care about anti-Semitism now that we're we're focusing so much of our activism and attention on the lives of Palestinians? It's a very clear agenda. And they did this whole hearing with, I think it was three female college presidents, which is a very clear agenda because were there no men on the panel? Like, apparently men can't speak to this. They were just trying to grill these women. And it's so incredibly sad because it really puts the nail in the coffin for higher education for me. As somebody who has always believed in higher education, especially as a Black woman, higher education is our tool. I mean, oh my God, how many Black women are getting third and fourth degrees, master's degrees, PhDs? It's it's been the pillar of strength for us that has pulled a lot of us into better places and better spaces. And I think that this entire case of Claudine, where because Harvard doesn't want to answer these questions on anti-Semitism, we're just going to throw our president in there with no media training. And I'm not going to lie. she. <laughs> I think they set her up. I do. I I don't think that they prepped her to answer the right questions. I think that they wanted to, the school wanted her to be backed into a corner. That way she would take the fall and the institution of Harvard wouldn't take the fall. Because yeah, there's been a serious anti-Semitism problem on college campuses for years. And not, there's never been a Senate hearing about it until Palestinians were considered, right? Because a lot of 
students on the campus have been protesting Palestine and Palestinians because colleges are kind of a silo for thought in whatever way that means. And they've become a silo for activism. And so it's, it's just, it's like watching these important pillars of society fall one by one. And I think to see who gets, I had to choose my words carefully here to see who gets trampled in the process is really telling to me. And this has been a thing. I think black women have been experiencing this for a while now where we're promoted to these higher positions. We become the CEO and for no longer than two years, um, they're at every level of the organization and of management. They make our jobs a living nightmare, impossible to get anything done because Oh, we were hired not only to do the job, but then to coach everybody, set all of the records straight, meaning tie up all those loose ends. Nobody questions Harvard, the ethics of Harvard, until a black president, until you have a black female president. Why have why is nobody questioning the money that goes behind Ivy Leagues? Nobody cares about that. It it only becomes questioned when there's a black female president. And this is what's happening across corporate systems. Black women are overqualified for all of the work. And so as a result, we're punished. We're, we're fired because, you know, nobody will support us. And it just reminds me of how we are single-handedly rebuilding society. You know, when society falls apart, you call us. You say, hey, we need you to fix this and, and teach us, educate us. That's part of why I hate even talking about these things on my podcast. I've made a specific intention to not have political commentary because, or to not focus on political commentary because I don't want to become some kind of teacher. That's what happens. You become the educator, right? And, and it's like that for a while, right? Oh, you teach me so much. You teach me so much until it's, well, what's your credibility? It, they always love you until they can call you into question. And so that's what's happened to Claudine. She did the hearing. The school basically sacrifices her to this hearing. She's the fall guy, not the institution. And all of a sudden, she plagiarized. What? So now we're looking back through her citations on her PhD. Like, as if people know anything about technical writing or PhD writing, you have an advisor and they, they, they're they not going to let you plagiarize. Like, I don't think people really understand how these systems work. For somebody like Claudine Gay to get to that level of academia, to reach that that glass ceiling, as we're conditioned to call it, there even a lot of Black women call the glass ceiling the glass cliff. Like, white women are breaking a glass ceiling. We're We're on a glass cliff, okay? Because we ascend this cliff and then we're pushed off. And that's what's happening. Now, now she's plagiarized. Now there's, there's got to be something wrong with her credentialing. There's nothing we're ever going to do that will be enough in, our, in the society's eyes. And it's incredibly, incredibly discouraging. So much so that as a community, Black women... We support each other to no end. I mean, I would say black 
people, and I'm speaking about Black Americans specifically, but I would I think that Black Americans, I mean, look at how hard it was for us to give up R. Kelly. You know, somebody who actually was a huge problem, somebody who really had a had a credibility issue. You know, not somebody like Claudine Gay, who has done all of the right things, who has, you know, ascended. And, and has, I mean, the only reason they hired her now, the, now everybody's saying, well, the only reason they hired her is because she was a diversity hire, which is so degrading because even if there was truth in that, it, it's just the refusal to actually witness black women. So we are the people that have to cross, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's. The, the black men, and I'm, I guess I'm specifically talking about entertainment. When you think about rappers and you think about like the R. Kelly's. The O.J. Simpsons. Oh, my God. The whole community is rallying behind them at all times because we know as a community that if one of our people has failed the system, we'll never be back there again. And so that's what's disheartening about Claudine Gay. And for any black women that have. Have clearly. Reached new heights that then get pushed off the mountain, that get pushed off the cliff. You know, that the curse of being the first, it's just disheartening because it's like, I know that for her as a woman, she had to work eight times as hard. Her whole life was dedicated to that, I'm sure. And I just, it's incredibly, incredibly disgusting to me. The rage isn't even enough of an, enough of an excuse. I, I, I've, Mom and I have already talked about it, and it's sad that in our own lives, we have mirrors of that. That's what's interesting about Claudine Gay is that so many Black women are in her shoes right now. where We're getting ready to be pushed off the cliff. We're having to make arrangements. We're having to stay on LinkedIn despite having a job because there's no corporate system that can be trusted with our career. And so... It's interesting. It also dawns on me that there were more black female entrepreneurs since COVID than any other group. You know, we started our own companies and now they're making it incredibly difficult to own a business. It's like every time we touch something, no more value. Value is gone, right? I was reading this article or I saw this TikTok about an article that I want to read that talked about the the epidemic of furs. Do you ever when in the 80s, furs became, oh my God, the ultimate show of wealth. Well, it's started becoming ghetto when black women started having access to furs, right? And I think about that all the time. Like, and I want to read that article because I think it's such a good mirror for so many metaphors that I'm trying to touch on with being a black woman in society. And I don't know. I, I just, it honestly, it's such a blow. I think for me, if I could just say what I really want to say here, it's a blow for me as a black woman who is currently in higher education because I'm like, I'm going to get this master's degree. And I have been thinking about a PhD. Um, the only reason that I've been thinking about it is because I kind of just want to get it done right away. I don't know why I have this fear that I'll become a parent, like I'll get pregnant and then I'll, you know, lose sight of my dreams. I don't know why that's a fear of mine. 
because obviously I get to choose if that's what I want to do with my body and my life. (laughs) But it is a fear of mine. Like what if some dusty comes along, derails me, and I never get to get back to get my PhD? You know what I mean? Like what if this is the time? This is the time for that. You know, I don't know. And then I'm, I just, I'm leaning towards taking a break. I don't think I'm going to get a PhD right away, but it just makes me think like, oh my God, what are the extra mountains I'm going to have to climb? Because even in my master's program right now, I'm, I literally, and I've said, have I shared this story on my podcast? I don't think I've shared it. Y'all, I, so the first unit we had to do, we had to produce a zine. And the zine is basically kind of like this punk thing that I think arose. I don't know if that's like rude to say punk. I think it literally came from that era where like um, the production of like copied materials was a way to like spread messages and say things. And so um, at UAL, making a zine, which is like, it's a magazine, but it's not really editorial. It's not commercial. So it's like ideas, it's writing, it's kind of a manifesto, it's kind of a lot of things. And I produce the zine, I pitch it, and I'm like so solidly behind it because I know that I have to cross my T's and dot my I's with anything that I produce. It's going to be received as political. It's going to be received as um, as invalid. So I have to have like all of my citations done. You know what I'm saying? Because of what's happening to Claudine. Like we're like, we can see it, right? So I present this and one of my teachers tells me to my face, none of this is valid. All of this is wrong. There's no validity to what you're saying. It's made up fact. There's nothing that you could say to, to validate this work. It's a mess and you need to rewrite it. Said this to me a week before it was due, by the way. Um, I have never in my life actually felt like I was going to get violent with somebody. I felt like I was going to get violent um, to hear. And by the way, this teacher was black. This is a black man. Okay. Who was so ready to just tear down my work at no avail. He didn't have to read it to know what was wrong about it. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing of all people. I assumed he would have some, Oh my God, I love it. You know, I, I, I don't know what I thought, but it was, it was horrifying. And I think what made the experience so horrifying was that there were white students around. He, that was the, it, that was the, the pull for him was to tear a black student down in front of white peers. I, I knew it. That was so much of where he was drawing his power from. Um, and he was so, he was just, te- he, I could, I could see his body language. He was just kind of teaching these white kids you know, like, let me make an example of her. And they were so excited to see the glimmer in their eyes as he was tearing me down. And and they were nodding. Yes, yes, I understand. Yep, yep. Exactly what I was thinking. You know what? Fuck you. Seriously, I'm going to say that here because you know who you are. You're wrong. You're wrong for that. And this idea that because my topic was about resistance. My topic was about where is black resistance cultivated? The fact that these white students know anything about black resistance is new to me. You do? Oh, you do know about black resistance. 
they don't know anything. And he used me to validate their racism. He used me. He sacrificed me in front of these white women. They were women, by the way. They were girls, which makes this even worse. They, he was so excited to, oh my God, walk on the wind of their white supremacy. Black men do this all the time. They do this when they marry the white girl and they're talking about how they hate us. So you ha- again, we're sitting at the crossroads of society. I either have to choose to be a woman or I have to choose to be black. It can never be the same. And that was the problem with my zine for him. Was that, you know, you have to be sacrificed either as a black woman or either as either as a black person or either as a woman. So therefore, it's contradictory. I mean, I just I lost my mind, not because I thought I was wrong. I didn't let him get into my head and make me feel like my topic was or my entire body of work was wrong. It was just so degrading. It was like somebody had ripped my clothes off and said, you're so ugly. So to be so vulnerable with somebody that you think will understand what you're talking about, will connect with you over this and and add academic um, language, will help you add and build and to tear me down. My two supporters that unit, the supporters of my work that unit was a white woman from the UK and a Brazilian woman. So two people that know nothing about black resistance and black identity. We're the only people that have done the anti, like they, they had deconditioned their colonial thought processes. That's why they could see what my work was about. That's why they could read it and absorb it in its entirety. Because they know who they are outside of colonialism. You know, I, I, I can't believe it. And that I almost was mad at myself for putting myself through this program. Because I know that I belong here. But it's the fact that I'm not taken seriously unless I'm talking about white things. But how how many new ways do we need to re-articulate white supremacy? Like, it's been done. It's been done. And it doesn't help that half of my classmates are here for commercial projects. They want to do commercial. They want to run in and do all these commercially-minded projects. And I get it. The commercial industry is how we make money as artists, right? So at some point, we're going to go work for a brand and become the art director. But but here's what blows my mind. Why would anybody come into this program trying to produce work that is already commercially sound? Why would you not try to wrestle with new ideas while you can in this space of privilege and add strength to those businesses into those marketing tactics. Like, why are we going into this industry as art directors trying to learn the marketing strategies of white people? Like, why not actually help connect some of these industries, some of these companies at the very base of what we do to Black audiences, to to audiences that exist but have never been validated, that have never been discussed. Their demographic has never been in the room in any of these fashion companies. When they're making fashion, they're making them for thin people. They're making them for, for, for you know, this, this one track person. And so it like, 
academia is so frustrating because it's like it advertises to be all of these things that it never is. In reality, it is a tool for white supremacy. It is a tool for these systems that we live in and that we fall victim to, that we're sacrificed to. And so I'm going to keep going with my work. Um, I have a final major project coming up. And so I have to, I'm basically going to continue that zine in so many different topics and ways. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm going to keep going because I feel like if the response was that negative, there's something good about it. <laughs> um and that's kind of what I have to take away from Claudine Gay, her whole situation is, you know, if they're pushing you out, it's because you, you, you're too powerful, right? There's something authentic about what you have to say and about who you are. And they can only hold you down for so long, you know? And I, that's kind of what is my strength is the fact that if I'm in my own lane, nobody can derail me. Nobody can derail me. Everything I've ever had to say has been relevant. And that's something that I wrestle with with my younger self, my inner artist that was a kid in these systems who was producing and writing and had all these good ideas and was told that I was dumb because I couldn't do math. I was dumb because I didn't care about the Pythagorean theorem. I knew at an early age what was relevant to me and what was relevant to society sorry about it. Calculus is not relevant. I'm actually not sorry about that. I'm not sorry. This idea that like there are these metrics that define certain things and certain levels of thought are insane. Because even Albert Einstein, somebody that we consider this like critical thinker and somebody that really just reshaped the way we think even said that, what did he say? He even said in so many ways that wisdom wasn't a product of schooling but like a lifetime attempt at acquiring knowledge, right? This idea that there is nothing that can define you as a knowledgeable person. That's what my entire podcast is. Shades of brilliance. What makes you brilliant? And how can you step in that to create more of a colorful life? How can you see life in color when everything is so gray? And, you know, those of us that are working with color, that see things for what they are, that see life in all of its forms and integrities, we have something so powerful that industry is just trying to reduce, you know, and, and that should scare us all, that the systems that we know don't want us to thrive. And so I can't imagine wanting to be some kind of a cog in the machine. I can't imagine it. And I know so many brilliant people who are just convinced that they're stupid. They're convinced that they don't matter. They're convinced that their work isn't going to ever amount to anything. And so they're cogs in the machine. They're cogs in the machine. And it's just, it's tragic, you know? 
uh, there's so many things I could say about this. Um, I don't know how I'm going to end this episode. It's just so, it, it, it's a reality. And I think that's why, that's one of the reasons I'm excited that we're in the age of truth. Because you can't hold truth down. Like it's not sustainable. Why do you think the world is warming? Why do you think our systems are falling apart? Because it's not sustainable to backbend into these lies, you know? And I don't know. That's that's the only good thing I can see coming from this. And I and I think all of us have to find the courage somehow to tell the truth. Whether it's telling the truth to ourselves, you know, I'm not really that into him, <laughs> or to tell the truth about how we function and about our systems because it's rewarding. It's rewarding to finally see things as they are. We're conditioned to be afraid and to see it as a problem and to see it as a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a good thing to see the truth. And that's all I can hope for is that we can all find the truth. I do, um, on my Instagram story, I reposted Claudine Gay. She had a, she released release. I'm not sure if that's the right word. She published an article, an opinion piece, an op-ed in the New Yorker, I think it was, um, where she told her side of the story. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece of work. And I encourage everybody to read it. I'm shocked that it even made its way to the New Yorker because the New Yorker now is a corrupt machine. Um, and so, I don't know, it's just, it's hard to look towards media to see anything real anymore. But her opinion piece was really great. And I encourage everybody to read it. I encourage everybody to consider their reality in these systems and to be a seeker of truth. That's really all we can do. And I'm going to leave you guys with that. This was episode one, a bang, <laughs> a bang of an episode to start season two. I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you do something for yourself this new year. Um, and remember that to take it slow. I always am very cognizant of the fact that my new year really doesn't start to like March and that's okay. I think there's an energy to March. You know, you start cleaning the spring cleaning and the sun comes out again and it's just kind of a, a better place to start the year. I feel like big monumental things happen for me around March. So for me, it's like the start of my new year all the time. Um, so I pick like one or two things to focus on for January and February, and then I just ease into the year in March. So that's, that's the way I do it. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next Friday. Bye-bye.